Welcome to Cottonmouth Manchester, a podcast brought to you by CityCo, the city centre management company for Manchester and Salford. I'm Vaughan Allen from CityCo, and this is our last podcast, at least for 2018. And I've been getting the year wrong all year, so I'm hoping for 2019 I managed to get the year right. Um, returning really to a, su- a subject that we covered back in episode two last summer, or at least on some of the related issues. Um, we're talking to Kate Allison, who's the chief exec of Manchester Action on Street Health. Uh, or, or during the last 45, 46 episodes, we've kept returning to rough sleeping, issues around um, street homelessness, but also issues around businesses dealing with anything that affects their ability to operate the business, what's happening out in the public realm. Uh, so I thought it'd be a good opportunity to chat with Kate, who's actually the outgoing chief exec. I saw an advert the yeah, other but- day. Not going for about six months. Okay, yet. cool. Um, <laughs> about uh, Mash, which has a lot of support from some of our members, notably Selfridges, have done a l- yes. lot, of, wor- lot yep. of work with you recently, and I think you and I also uh, when they when they did Mayfield, uh, some of the you and I crew from London cycled up they to raise did, money to architect, for you, yes, which I, which was absolutely great. Mega cycle. Um, so this is an opportunity really to just talk about the background to Mash, uh, what's happening on the street now, uh, where funding comes from, and really how you guys as businesses listening to this can help in the future. So Kate, uh, start at the beginning. What's the background to MASH? Where, when did you start? We've uh, been... What's your core uh, activity? We started about 27 or 28 years ago. Um, and we didn't actually start as a women's organisation. We started out um, like a number of other organisations in the city. We started out as an HIV and AIDS charity. Um, basically what happened is people were going out into particularly um, both, I think, um, from the gay community, but also drugs workers um, were going out into Manchester, into the village, um, doing sort of harm reduction, which was then really, really radical stuff. So giving out condoms, clean needles um, and getting messages across around safe sex. And when people started going out to do that, they realised that at that time, um, that was where the the women who were working on the street were. The women worked around Minchell Street in those days. So there was a recognition that there was a particular need to um, to reach sex working women, initially around um, a public health issues, around HIV. But as we did more work in those days, realising the complexity of the needs of the women. And have you been involved there. from the beginning? No, I haven't. No, I've only been around about seven or eight years. So things over the years, what we do has grown and changed quite a lot really since then yeah talk us talk us through that evolution i mean what what you, you talked about minchel street at the time i, I guess uh, from my knowledge of it it would be a little bit harder as it's now surrounded by bars to yeah. have yep. too much sex work going on around yep. there so so where has the scene moved to but also what have you seen particularly over your time uh that's changed and changed risk profiles and so on i would say i mean the the history was that certainly as the village developed commercially and the bars and so on developed the women moved and were to some extent that was a conscious um move by the local authority and the police and so on um, to move what we would call the main beat area, the red light area in Manchester, to around Fairfield Street. So industrial units, not busy in the evening, fairly out of out of the way um, for, for the general public and not too much nuisance, I guess. Um, the other area that people may well be aware that women work in Manchester is more around Cheatham Hill and around Strangeways. Um, those are the two main areas for, for street sex work. Um and for many years, what we did was largely outreach to women in those areas. We had, before my time, we had a great big trailer unit with a mobile clinic and things on it. That got nicked about eight or nine years ago and someone tried to sell it on eBay. 
Um, but that really was a... Did, did it have your logo on the side? <laughs> I think it might have done. I'm not sure the, the whole story. Um, but that was a push really to say, we think we could do quite a lot more if we had a building. So that if we had somewhere fixed where women knew where we were. And so about 10 years ago, there was a push to get um, additional funding. We'd already ha- always had some funding from health and from the local authority. Um, and then we went out and got some lottery funding and some other grants and trusts and opened the MASH Centre, which is where we are now on Fairfield Street. Um, we've always continued to do outreach, though. And nowadays, that's actually growing again as the major area of work we do as things in the city are changing. Um, is that changing geographically and where work is, is being done or the, or the type of work? Both. Both. Um when I arrived, I think we would have said that there are women who sell sex on the streets who tend to be women, um, experience very um, severe forms of multiple deprivation, really. So lots of women who've had appalling you know, life histories, a lot of trauma um, themselves as children, as young women, um, which has often led to major issues with their mental health and addiction and so on. So women that really have very, very complex needs. But also um, we do work with women who worked indoors in massage parlours, saunas, who are a different community really, Um, have to be a lot more organised, a lot more kind of um, self-sufficient really to to do that. that. That area of our work is still around, but it's reducing really because of the internet. So I think there's two changes. Um... There are more women who are able to advertise online um, and so can work much more flexibly. And there are also, um, even among the the, stri- the women who are working on the street, um, you can have regular clients and so on that you contact on by your phone now. So things shift and they change. Um, so there isn't a need so much for them for a concentrated, in quotes, red light area? Not as much so, no. I mean, it's still still there but it, it it means everything's much more diffuse really and and less clear cut i think it's it's harder to say you know this is this is what's going on here this is what's going on here people's lives i think are are more fluid perhaps than they used to be um and that's where the other big change that i'd say that i've seen in the last not so very many years has been the interaction really between um, women who are selling sex on the streets and the links with um, with rough sleeping and homelessness and, and possibly with begging as well. Um, it used to be a very clear distinction. We worked with women who identified uh, themselves as sex workers. That's what they did. You know, they stood on the street in an identifiable way and that, that was how they made their money. Um, a few years ago, probably when the tents started appearing in the city centre, some of the women we were working with kind of um, got got involved a bit more in that and I think felt that that was a place where they had some social support and some friendships. Um, and that seems to have led or contributed to a kind of, again, a, a, a softening of these different boundaries between who people are. So women who we might have known for quite a long time um, working on the beat, we started to see in the city centre. Um, and equally, we've become very aware, and, and this is known nationally, I think, and we're kind of careful not to want to be, to overstate it, but we're very aware of the vulnerability of women who are in the city centre, whether that's rough sleeping or begging, towards to sexual exploitation 
and needs. So for us, it's all about outreach again, really. And presumably there's a large proportion of uh, that latter group that you're talking about who are, are rough sleepers, either either permanently or, or uh, temporarily, um, who don't necessarily view um, selling sex as their only method of getting money. So it, it's a casual, it's a more casual thing for they, them, I guess. I, I don't think, I, mean, I don't want to speak for any, for any individual woman because everybody is an individual and sees things differently. But I think in that case, you're not talking about women who would identify themselves as sex workers at all. And in fact, may have a great deal of... Um, you know, would be quite worried about being identified as such and also, you know, would, would absolutely say that that wasn't what they were doing um, and maybe have some, um, you know, still be buying into the stigma against sex workers. So that means that, you you know, you can't be, you can't be assuming what people are doing and equally you can't be be saying to people that that is what they're doing because they don't see it, see it that way themselves. But we know that when it comes to surviving in difficult times, um, then often you might call opportunistic or informal sex work or um, survival sex might be a phrase that some people might use. Um, and it's sometimes through choice and it's sometimes much more exploitative than that. If, if people aren't self-defining as sex mm. workers, does that then make it hard for your outreach people to engage with them? Because presumably those who are professional sex workers, who want a better, better term, they know of your existence yes. very quickly. They yes. know of the services yes. you offer, whereas yes. if they're more casual, less so. I, th- I think we're feeling our way here, to be fair. Um, and I think we would go back to our name, which is Manchester Action on Street Health. So we, you know, we began going out into the village, we, we began working with whoever needed our services and it was about the, the street health bit, if you like. And I think now we're trying to say, we're here for any woman that that needs our service. Um, the needs of the women we're working with are all very, very similar. Um, but certainly I think we would recognise that for a lot of women, they don't want to come onto the beat and come into the MASH centre. But they might be, um, you know, willing to come onto our van or talk to us on outreach. It might be better to support people away from the beat area, perhaps, got you know, over a cup of coffee or meeting elsewhere and so on. So that that's kind of, as I say, we're kind of feeling our way a bit with that. But And is that then problematic in that know, knowing that there's that demand uh, for outreach again in terms of where you're putting your resources and where you're putting your funding to, to start developing those streams in a bigger way? It stretches. It stretches it, certainly. Um, we now go out um, in terms of our outreach van, vehicle we now have um like a motorhome that we um we saved up for and bought a year or so ago and we go out now um four nights a week until midnight um but that's still largely on the beat areas um but that takes a lot of um a lot of resourcing because the other thing with with our work is that we our outreach is always paid led really by paid workers we have fantastic volunteers but we're very conscious that we're quite on the edge there so so we would always have volunteers with with a member of staff because there's something about knowing what else is going on for people and working quite closely with pe- women that you get to know it's knowing that backstory understanding it so you can really coordinate it and make sure that we're you know we're working very safely for ourselves and for the women yeah that's that's something i think that uh, a lot of the third sector organizations certainly working in in street homelessness and rough sleeping uh rely on very strongly is actually um, people who've had experience yes. uh, themselves yeah. so presumably you you do have ex sex workers up still- to a point we do um i mean i don't necessarily know what our volunteers have done in their backgrounds, that's true, yes, and, we, yeah, and, we, and we don't ask um we, we don't ask directly we um 
we certainly have one of our former service users is a trustee. Um, and we do work with, with women with a whole range of lived experience, but it's not always a great idea for women who've been engaged perhaps in street sex work to then come back and volunteer with us too soon anyway. Um, it's generally been a very traumatic part of people's lives and we find that women often don't want to come back onto the beat and volunteer with us. So, And often by the time the women we work with are ready to be volunteering, they've moved away from us already. And so we may come across women that we used to know volunteering somewhere else, but we don't tend to um, to have people who've perhaps been recently working volunteering with us. Um, talk us through uh, in Fairfield Street then talk us through the sort of services that you offer yep. uh, for people yep. who will visit you there um, so the first thing I think to say is that the, the thing about the drop-in is it's absolutely driven by the women so nobody has to come to us generally it's, it's self-referral effectively you know just coming through the door um, give us some very minimal information initials really um, initials and date of birth so we can just keep a rough idea on who we're seeing um, for some women they literally will just pop in for a cup of tea um, a sit down somewhere that's warm, um, somewhere they feel safe. Especially at this time of year. I yeah, absolutely. And, and somewhere that you, that you feel safe is really important. You can't really see in, our centre's lovely and our drop-in is, is very bright and colourful and comfortable. Um, but it is a very kind of secure space and it is, a you know, for, for, for women. Um, so some people just come in, they just pop in, as I say, and just want to have a, have a sit down, maybe have a chat with somebody, see a friend. Some women will literally just dash in perhaps for condoms or for clean needles and dash out again. Um, but we do try to engage more with the, with the women that come in. So um, we offer, um, I mean, particular services that we offer. We have a sexual health nurse. So we have uh, sexual health clinics at the centre and also on outreach. We have a counsellor, um, that's, that's appointment only. And we have complementary therapists that offers massage as well. Um, but the main thing, I guess, is is seeing the casework, is being able to engage with our caseworkers so that we can help people with um, housing issues if we're thinking about homelessness, um, with benefits, with financial issues, with, with a whole range of um, direct support either from us or making sure that women are linked into all the partner agencies we work with. Um, we also do quite a lot of work on things like sexual health, um, not sexual health, sexual violence and safety and those issues as well. So some issues that are quite specific really to women and to the women that we work with. Uh, and, I th and I would assume then that when I mean, you talked about that link into the other agencies, so mm. you, pr you provide this sort of this hub for people with, I mean, you, you talked particularly for those who engage in, in survival sex, obviously about drug issues, but also about mental health issues. Yeah. Do you provide yeah. support for those directly or do you, do you link into other services? And We uh, would be supporting in, in terms of general wellbeing um, for women who are ready for counselling. Our counsellor is very experienced and has worked with us for a long time, um, very highly qualified. But if it's uh, a more acute needs or specific, um, you know, clinical needs, then obviously we would link in with with other services. Um, and then generally, what's what's the attitude, I guess, of the public authorities towards well, sex work, and then and then towards yourself? I mean, we've seen a lot of coverage uh, in Leeds of, of sort of a semi-licensed red light area. We don't we don't have that here. There's a sort of toleration, I guess. Um, but how does that affect your work? Um. I think what's happened in Manchester is that we were way ahead of Leeds um, a long time ago. So in Manchester, I was talking about the fact that women used to work around Minchell Street and around the village, and then that moved. Some of that came about because 
Manchester for many, many years has had a prostitution forum. So we have brought, I think if, if you have a look, I was having a look when we had our 25th anniversary. It's, we've got some old records of MASH and perhaps police attitudes 27 years ago were not great. Um, but that changed, you know, it probably didn't take all that long in those early years. And, and for a very long time now, there's been a very strong partnership between um, the city council, the police and the voluntary sector. So primarily ourselves, but also the men's room um, and life share. Um, so organisations come together to fo- to agree really a focus on keeping women safe. So that's that's the starting point in Manchester. We start, start with um, sort of putting aside particular issues that we might have about prostitution and saying, how do we keep these people safe? And we work around that. But presumably also the police or other public authorities also need to talk to you when they want to talk to the street workers because yes. rarely can they yes. go out themselves and talk yes. to street workers yes. as well. Which is really- yes. So um, we work closely with the police to, as I say, to, to, to make sure the women are safe. And we do things like, um, we've done quite a lot of going out and doing briefings and training for police and for special constables and so on. So we go out and do awareness raising. Um, we take part in... Um, you know, joint meetings where where that's appropriate. And over the last few years as well, we've been working quite closely um, around issues to do with trafficking and modern slavery as well. Yeah, you, you mentioned the massage parlours and obviously that's one of the things that comes up mm. a lot in terms of massage mm. parlours um, where we have seen some raids both by police but also by immigration authorities mm. as well and modern slavery becomes ever, ever a bigger issue. Talk, talk us a bit through that. How, mu- how much of a problem does Manchester have in that regard? I would say it's impossible to say. Um, I really would. Um, we the the issues we've seen have actually not been in parlours; they've been on the street, um, and it's very hard to know which women have been through the kind of the kind of stereotypical experience of being brought over here against their will or against their knowledge, um, and then forced to work. It, there are some women, I think, where that has happened. I know there was there was one young woman who we met who um, hadn't been here all that long, and she'd been effectively groomed over the internet by by somebody and encouraged to come here. Um, what we do see, I think, is that once women are here, they are extremely vulnerable to exploitation. So they may think that they may know that they're coming over. Um, to sex work, but they may not know what the conditions are going to be like. They may not know how much, you know, they, it may be that somebody's going to charge them a ridiculous amount for of rent to stay here, that sort of thing. Um, so it's sometimes difficult to know quite what's going on. Um, certainly we've been involved in a, a couple of court cases. There was one um, a couple of years ago where we, every so often we'll go out much later than we normally do to try and understand what's going on. And we did a week of nights and saw that there were some Hungarian women who were out every night and we'd seen them before and we'd seen them early on where they were fairly chirpy if you like but by the as we kept seeing them later and later and later it was very clear that they didn't want to be there um and we were able to um to gain their trust and then again working with the police that that was a case of 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 modern slavery really have we we seen uh, a change in terms of the demographics of sex workers over the last decade or so um, we certainly see a very high proportion of Romanian women, Eastern European women, largely Romanian women. So we're seeing, yeah, we're seeing very, very poor young women from very poor countries. Um, 
yeah, coming over here to, to usually to send money back to their families. A lot of them have got children at home or elderly parents they're sending money back to. Um, then how how difficult it is for you? Because I presume a sort of core to, to what you have to do is to take a very uh, objective um, and non-judgmental attitude towards sex work itself. Uh, but how difficult is it for you and your staff sometimes to not get totally involved and want to drag somebody out in situations? Um, I think it's like, it's like a lot of things, isn't it? You have to make sure that what you're doing is for the benefit of that individual. And remember that you are working with people who are, you know, they're generally, um, unless there's very significant exploitation going on, you're working with, with grown-ups who are making decisions. And it doesn't, it doesn't usually work to, to try to rescue people. I mean, first of all, that's assuming that you know best for somebody, which often doesn't work. But also if people aren't ready to make changes in their lives, then somebody else just telling them to do it doesn't usually work. So our approach is almost is is almost always really to try and build a relationship. So as we get to know people and people trust us, you know, if people trust us, then when they're if they want to make a change to their lives or if they have a crisis or if they need some help, then then they come to us. And the importance can, of them knowing that you're there. So it's knowing whenever. that we're there. Yeah. But everything we do is is based around working um with people to to achieve what they want to achieve in their own time. Has there been any been any impact? I mean, we've seen a lot over the last couple of years, particularly, particularly within a section of the Labour Party where uh, there's been endorsement of the Nordic model and various other things going on, uh, where where classically um, self-proclaimed feminists refuse to listen to sex workers or talk to sex workers at all, um, which presumably you, you probably won't comment on. Um, what I'm interested in, though, is is as that sort of policy background changes and as, as um, conversations change at that level, do you feel that on the streets as well? I don't think we do in Manchester. I, I think where you perhaps feel that is very much dependent on local policing or local politics. Um, so I think where I've heard people being more aware of it has been perhaps, um, trying to think of some examples, London during the Olympics, where there was a great belief that there'd be lots of trafficking and slavery. So that impacted, I think, on policing. Um, I think in Manchester, because we, we've, we, well, we don't, as an organisation, get involved in the politics of sex work. Um, it's very divisive. And if certainly if you end up on social media or whatever, people will just be arguing at each other rather than actually um, agreeing to disagree and then working for the benefits of the individual. So we take a very um, clear view that we are a service delivery organisation. Um, we will have, among our staff, volunteers, trustees, a wide range of views, Um and we very deliberately try not to engage in that. What we would say is that anything which drives sex work underground and hidden makes it much harder to offer people help and support. And that's about as far as we go on that. But no, in, in Manchester, it hasn't really played out, but it, it, it does in other in other places, I think. I guess whatever the legislative framework, actually how the police then operate on the ground is very important. Absolutely, yeah. Which is why we spend time very much working in partnership um, as I say, offering training, offering awareness, getting involved. Okay, let, let's, uh, one of the most important things for third, third sector organisations, where did your funding come from and, and how has that situation changed over the last few years? I think probably the way it's changed since I've been around was that initially we had some funding from the City Council 
um, primarily to do with the fact that we were supporting um, supporting women around drug use. So that was coming out of sort of strands of money to do with drug drug and alcohol services. And then we had some money, um, which historically was NHS and is now local authority that was around sexual health. Um, and we still get that. So that's that's basically a contract to to deliver um, support around drug use and sexual health. But it's it recognises that what we do is wider than that as well. Um, and then we go out, we have some funding from the mayor's office to work with women who are effectively vulnerable victims of crime and um, a little bit of homelessness money. And we go out and we fundraise. We had some lottery funding, which has just come to an end. Um, we have funding from various grants and trusts, um, people like the Lloyds Bank Foundation, for example. Um, and we are always um, looking for people to support us and whether that is to give regularly, which is always wonderful for us, but also people go out and they, you know, they run marathons and they jump off buildings and they, um, attached to things. I attach, hope. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah. I think when they, yeah. <laughs> um, and so we have, we have people who are very generous, um, fundraising for us and also people who prefer to give, um, who prefer to, to, to give, um, things that we will give directly to women. So for example, at the moment we are um, collecting Christmas gift bags for women, um, which is is always a, a really lovely thing to be able to do at Christmas that we know that every woman will get a really, really nice um, gift bag at Christmas time. During the year we're often put out, we, we, we don't have huge storage, so we don't do things like collect lots and lots of clothing and so on, but we um, will put out, you know, we will, for you know, sometimes put out calls for socks or... Um, you know, particular clothing, things like that. And people are always very generous and give in that way as well. And then looking forward, I mean, you said you, you're going to be there for another six months or so, but how would you, over the, the next few years, how would you like to see the services evolve and what do you think is going to be required? Um, I think it's quite hard to know in detail, but the main thing is I think there's a recognition that there are women in the city who've got very, very complex needs and that I would, and I don't think we've yet got it right in recognising that the needs of women are different from the needs of men. So we need to see, I think, a much um, more sophisticated, really, approach to to gender when we're planning services. So, for example, in terms of homelessness, um, we, we know that many, many homeless women will have been... Um, will have experienced sexual violence and will have been raped or assaulted or um, experienced domestic abuse, classically. Um, and yet, most provision is dominated by men. So, you know, women might be being asked to go to services where 90% of the other people there are men, um, including possibly men that they may have actually been abused by in the past. Um, so, yes, because I suppose you, while you're saying that the domestic abuse might have caused them to go onto the streets, actually the position of being vulnerable on the streets is yeah. also laying you yeah. open to exactly yeah. that same Absolutely. Thing. So I think what we see is that very often, the re thinking about homelessness in particular, very often the reason that women are homeless um, is to do with violence. And then once women are around on the streets, then they are subject to further violence and the services are not designed to recognise that and to recognise the particular needs of women. So I think I'd, I'd like to see much more being done um, to support um, women who are experiencing a whole range of, you know, of needs and, and complexity of deprivation, not just sex working women. Okay. And uh, obviously we're a business organisation. How can, how can businesses help? 
Well, we're always interested in people that are um, able to donate. Um, generally, goods um, and sometimes money and activities. We're not an organisation that finds it easier easy to offer people um, volunteering experiences. That's that's not something we generally engage in. Um, We've had fantastic support over the last year or so from the um, Chamber of Commerce, particularly from um, the women um, at the Chamber of Commerce. That's been fantastic. Um, and they've done things like get involved in the CEO sleep out for us. Um, Stella from the Chamber has done has done lots with us. We've, um, we've, we, I know, I think this this week they're collecting for us for our um, our Christmas appeal. Um, we're always. Um, very happy to come out and talk to people um, to raise awareness as well, um, and yeah, it's 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 both about us needing resourcing to do what we do, but also um, trying really to take opportunities to talk to people about the the reality of the women we support and trying to get over that these are human beings it's sometimes when we get volunteers they think our dropping is going to be really kind of exciting you know and edgy and stuff and they come along and you know it's just a bunch of people that are going to sit and talk about you know what they saw on telly last night or you know it, 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 just people i think that's one of the things we find the, the more we talk to organizations and indeed many of my staff are, are working on many of these issues all the time is um how much when you're sitting around a debating table, you thinking about the policy, thinking about long-term strategies that you forget at the heart of this, there is always an individual human yep. being or a group of human beings. Absolutely. Um, where can people find out more about MASH? Go to website. Um, should just come up, www.mash.org.uk. Um, we're on Facebook and Twitter. Um, you can give us a call. Um, we're around. That's great. I noticed on Googling you earlier that you have a, uh, I think, an average review of 4.3 on Google. Do which, we? Yes, you have a very good review, review which presumably mostly from the women, I, I, would, I would assume, which is, which is very good. Uh, praising your cup of tea, particularly, which is oh, a very right, good service. Right. And, and from volunteers, I think, as well. We, we have, I mean, we have a lot of volunteers. We've got about 40 or 50 volunteers that, that volunteer with us regularly. That's the other thing, people, the other way people can help, although we're not currently recruiting. Um, but we may well be doing in the autumn. So our volunteers help out um, in lots of different ways. So if you're interested, keep an eye out. Uh, follow, follow on Twitter. Yep. If anyone wants my job as well, that's... Yes, um, I've, I've been retweeting that one recently. So if you Good. follow, follow Mouth MCR, you will already <laughs> see that retweeted and we will keep on doing so as well. Uh, thank you to Kate and to our friends at Blueprint Studios in downtown Salford for editing this. Uh, thank you for listening. If you've got any comments, talk to us on Twitter at Cottonmouth MCR. <laughs> <laughs>